This week's episode of the Vel News Podcast brought to us by our friends over at Health IQ. Health IQ is the innovative life insurance company that works with healthy people like us who go out there and get after it, do healthy stuff on the weekends. Spencer, what'd you get after this weekend? Actually got out and did a little skiing on Sunday. A little, uh, little break from the bike, and it's nice to get out of the snow. I'd say it was healthy. I did, I did too. I went and shredded the pow up, at, uh, up in the Rocky Mountains. Big, long lines, but a lot of snow. And I got to say, I was tired afterwards. Skiing? Skiing's hard. Biking's yeah. easy. Turns out, yeah. So for Health IQ, they have a great deal for fans of the Vel News podcast believe they have a url spencer what are the details here it's real easy just go to healthiq.com slash velonews you get a free quote on your life insurance and you'll support the show which hopefully you like so healthiq.com slash velonews all right on with the show you're tuned into the velonews podcast it's fred dreyer it is monday the week after the UCI Cyclocross World Championships, I'm here at the Villeneuve World Headquarters with Mr. Chris Case. Hello, Chris. Hello, hello. And Spencer Paulison. Hey, hey. And we all watched the muddy action from Valkenburg this past weekend. And, you know, going into this race, we were, like, asking ourselves what's going to be the defining feature of the Valkenburg course. You know, is it going to be – it's not sand. Mm-mm. It's not, uh, you know, some steep run-up. What's it going to be – and guys, it turned out that it was the peanut buttery mud that just looked awful. Have ever have either of you guys ever raced in conditions like that before? Hmm, I think I may have, uh, but I, without being in Valkenburg to know just how bad it was there, prob- probably not exactly like that. Because not only was it peanut butter, but those ruts looked insane. They were half a wheel deep in places. Yeah, it looked it looked insane. I, I I'm not gonna stand here and say that I've raced a course like Valkenburg. I don't think very many people could say that, but I've certainly had a few cyclocross races where I have ripped derailers off due to mud. And uh I think that the if the riders hadn't been getting pit bikes nearly every lap there would have been similar mishaps. And I think in fact a lot of people were having trouble because that mud is just horrible for the bikes. And so we got a little bit of a, of a taste that this race was going to be muddy and really terrible early in the week when I believe it was Carrie Werner gave us a pre-ride video that we put up on velonews.com. And I got to say, watching the, the pre-ride video from the perspective of, of Carrie riding that course, I was like, oh my God, this looks awful. Well, and also more than anything, what I picked up from that was you could hear how heavily he was breathing just during a pre-ride. And, you know, he's obviously one of the elite athletes in the U.S. when it comes to both cross and mountain biking. And if he's, like, having that much trouble just keeping it moving on a pre-ride <laughs> lap, you know that mud is insanely heavy. Yeah. And that's just a next-level difficulty thing when you have to pedal through that kind of thing. So the results of the race, Wout Van Aert won his third elite men's world championships after going off the front in dominating fashion. In the women's race, there was a great duel between our very own Katie Compton and Sana Kant. Came down to the last lap. Oh, it was a total heartbreaker. Katie came home with the silver medal while Sonic Hunt was able to repeat and all of us kind of fell out of our chairs from exhaustion of watching <laughs> oh, that race. Awesome. Oh, man. It was. It was a great race. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, the, the, the team you wanted to win didn't win, but you felt good afterwards because it was such a great piece of entertainment. Yeah, it sounds kind of familiar. It's like there was some other sporting event that happened over the weekend that sort of sounds a little hmm, like that. I, I yes, can't, yes. I'm not really sure. That? I can't put my finger on it. Um, oh, the Super Bowl? 
Oh. Never heard of it. Well, hmm. the team that nobody wanted to win didn't win. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, Ooh, our, suck it, Pats. Our friends in New England are not going to like that. I know. Uh, let's get to this, the action, though. We all watched the races. First, let's get a rundown of the women's race. Spencer, we, I mean, we all watched this. I, I watched it. I was streaming it to my phone in the lobby of a hotel at the ski resort where I was skiing. That's and every, where a lot of people watch yeah, cross races, right. actually. People were, like, common. people were like, what is this guy doing? I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I'm just poaching the Wi-Fi. I almost fell out of my chair, but give us the rundown. How did, how did that race go down? Fred, it was a really exciting race to watch just because it was one of those back and forth duels that we just love when we get in a cross race. There's been a lot of years where we've had this in the world and in the women's race, especially this whole season has been kind of like this. So it started and Sana Khan immediately went to the front as she likes to do in pretty much every race. She knows that she's best when she can take control. Compton wasn't too far back. It's one of those things where it's all relative. She's had such trouble with race starts throughout her career and once in a while, she'll she'll have a good start, and I think for her, a good start is being you know close enough to ride into the top five on the first lap, which is what she did. And then pretty soon, pretty soon, she was on Sonicant's uh, wheel and going into the second and third laps, and you could tell that Sonicant was running a little better. There was a lot of run-ups, and there's even some stuff you just had to run where it was flat. You just couldn't couldn't pedal through it, or it was a weird off camera or something. There's lots and lots and lots of running. I don't know how Sonicant got so fast at running, but maybe she should uh, give uh, the Olympics a shot for the Belgian team. Maybe uh, who knows? <laughs> it's, it's you know cyclocross is an Olympic sport, so we never know. But Compton, on the other hand, I thought was finding ways to get free speed on just little odds and ends, little corners and little little drops and moves and other things where just an experienced cross rider can get a little bit of a gap if you're in the front and if someone else is on your wheel. And, and she did that. She got she a gap. She did. She did, exactly. And that's what I was thinking of exactly, where she comes into that final lap with about eight or nine seconds. Yeah. And it was just kind of those weird little odds and ends where she had gotten that advantage. Her second and third laps were tremendously fast relative to the rest of the field. And then she just couldn't hang on on that last lap. I, I talked to her after the race on Saturday. She, you know, I, I started off the conversation being like, so should I be saying congratulations to you? Because, <laughs> you know, uh, from a fan perspective, you want her to win and it's a disappointment to have a silver medal. But for her, not at all. She was totally happy with her race. She, she was really, really just had nothing but good things to say about how it was a battle and how it was an exciting race. And she just told me basically that she had three good laps in her and her body wouldn't let her do a fourth one at that pace. And uh, Sonicant could remain consistent. And I think the only real error, and she admits this as well when I talked to her, was that she went for that pit, the first pit on the last lap. And there's two pit entrances, as usually is the case, these cross races. And that first one was not as advantageous because it's a slight uphill. She had to run much, much farther than Sonic Khan to get her bike. And that's when the gap disappeared. That's Con when I was cursing the screen. Right, me too. Because you could just see it vanish, yep. vanish. Like that eight seconds or whatever she had going into the pit was gone by the end of it. And it was, I mean, I don't know how it affected Katie mentally, but if it was me, I'd be like, holy F, you know, it was just like gone. And that was, and then. Yeah. And on the flip side, it positively affects Sonic Kant mentally. Exactly. When you can close down a gap like that, get right on your on the. I mean, I think Sonic Kant 
after three laps thought she was racing for second. I, I think that it was a stunner for her to be able to chase back Compton like that. Blood in the water. Exact, that's exactly it. It's when you smell that blood in the water and you know you've got a shot when you thought you didn't, and it's a, that, that bit of adrenaline you get, especially in a world championship of all races. Chris, do you think there's anything Katie Compton could have done differently to win? I really don't. I think that she said it best. Like she put everything out there. She went as hard as she could for as long as she could. And regardless of that pit incident and the time that Sana brought her back, brought back in the pits, I, I still feel like Sana would have brought her back just not as quickly and then would have won. She was on really good form on the last lap and she went really deep and she pulled out a pretty big lead on Katie. You will never know, but I don't think Katie could have done anything more. I'm with you. You know, I watched the last couple laps there and when I tuned in, you know, I was following on Twitter and then tuned in and Katie had a, you know, she was out front. I think she had a 10 second gap. Uh, it was the penultimate lap, and you could just tell that it was coming down. And Sonicant was running faster, and you know they would seem to be even on the rolling parts of the, of the course, but in the heaviest sections and then the run-up, you could just tell Sonicant was eking it back a little bit more and a little bit more. And, and my theory is, you know, no matter if Katie had pitted first or last or somewhere in the middle, Sonicant had the momentum, she had the blood in the water, and you could just say that she was she was making up that time. But, you know, you got to figure that the race that Katie Compton raced was probably the, the strategy that gave her the best opportunity to win. You know, I don't know if any of us saw her necessarily competing for the win alongside Sonicant. And the fact that she was on a good day, it was a course that did cater to her strengths, and that it was this power course. And, and she just went, she kind of had this go-for-broke uh, method um, I think that that was her keys to, to get in second place. Yeah, I don't think you wait around on a course like that on a day like that. If you see an opportunity to get a lead on Sonicant, you take it. You don't sit on her wheel and wait for the last lap. So she did what she could. Yeah. So, so now great performance all around by the U.S. team in this women's race. So Katie Compton, second place. Katie Keogh, sixth place. Her highest, highest result yep. in a world championship. And uh, Elle Anderson... Also a personal best result. Eighth place. Yeah. With three riders in the top 10. Unbelievable. No other country did that. And so, Spencer, you talked to Jeff Proctor before the race, and he said that this was, you know, this was the strongest U.S. team he'd seen in a while, right? Yeah, a lot of people were saying that. Katie Compton said that to me as well prior to the championships, and it really showed. I think the only surprise was that Ellen Noble wasn't there in the top 15, top 10. She had a rough day. I don't really know what the exact explanation was there, but boy, I think especially for Ella Anderson to come in and, and get a top 10 like that, you know, we know that she's a consistent, strong racer. She's still kind of finding finding herself, I think, and um, she's she does really well on that type of course this in those is conditions. True. Exactly, exactly. Based in Europe, uh, so I think that's part of it, having the experience in those conditions. It's great to see her get into that top 10 because when she, at Nationals a few years ago, she challenged Katie Compton. We were looking at her as the next great uh, female cyclocrosser for, from America. And then it seemed like there were a few years where she wasn't quite on that level. So another shocker, moving on to the men's race, I think all of yeah. us expected Matthew Vanderpool to just mop the floor with the rest of the men's field based off of his dominating performances this year on the World Cup and the DBV and the Super Prestige. You know, when this guy wins, he wins big. 
And that didn't happen at all. In fact, not only did he not mop the floor with anybody, he tried his hardest to drop Wout Van Aert on the first lap, and then the just the elastic snapped, and Van Aert was gone, won by uh, like two minutes or so. So Chris... Give us the rundown. What did you see in that men's race? Yeah, there's so many amazing conclusions you could draw from this race. It was really surprising to see someone who had beaten Wout 26 out of 32 races this year. Something like that. You know, he went to the front quickly and tried to put in one of his characteristic attacks. And I think... If you were paying attention, that's when you realize, uh uh-oh, he's not on his best day because Wout was there, and this was a course that arguably uh, suits Wout better than other types of courses because it was heavy. It was technical. Running. Running, lots of running. You could particularly see the the body language of, of... Mathieu on the on the run-ups was not not good and and Wout was just crushing it up those those climbs were like not a staircase beyond a staircase almost a wall it's everyone, a mud case like yeah. a like a rock wall almost Every, everyone know? was like power hiking them yeah and and Van Aert made it look like he was just prancing was sailing along like up a, it like a deer and, and it didn't Amazing. stop seven laps of Wout just riding he did you know he, he did what Matthew has done at pretty much every other race this year he basically embarrassed the field and made it boring to watch and made it boring <laughs> to watch he rode away from everybody and he was I mean uh, the rest of the world is saying this is one of the hardest courses they've ever raced in their life. And, oh, yeah. And Wout just, he beat Matthew by two and a half minutes. Do you think he, Matthew's ever lost by that much in his life? It was a beatdown. <laughs> and, and the crazy thing, too, is that this was a long race. Wout Van Aert's finish time, I think, yeah. was like an hour and 10 minutes, man. Yeah. That's like a lot of cross. That's torture. <laughs> well, and it was hardly a flawless performance. We mm. saw him crash. True. We saw him have trouble in the pits. Wout Van Aert was slipping and sliding around just like everyone else. But it just really seemed to me like in these sections where everyone, you know, it just seemed like he was smoother in the sections than everyone else and then he was running way better than everybody else yes definitely and he was riding some stuff that the other guys were not riding for instance that that section that went past the first pit that was sort of a gradual uphill most of the race Wout Van Aert was riding that whole thing and everyone else had to dismount and run at least a good part of it and um, sidebar also it seemed that most of the men were not using that first pit as I had mentioned previously the, the pit that seemed to have caused Compton trouble on the last lap. So maybe they were watching that race and realized it wasn't advantageous to get a fresh bike there versus the second one. Another thing that we haven't talked about is um, the preparation that Wout does or seems to do for these big races. Last year, we saw it with his tires at um, a course that chewed up a bunch of people's tires and led mm-hmm. to a lot of punctures. And there was uh, Simon Burney was chattering a lot in the feed that I was watching about Wout's tires and the work that they did beforehand to find they were they were um, filing down different tread patterns yeah. and working up until the last minute to find him the right tire and. I'm not going to say that that's what led to two and a half minute uh, win over over one of the best cyclocross. If it races. is, then I want those tires. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Give me those tires. But he is a he is a big race racer, and he's had his ass kicked time and time again this year. He went away. He went to Greece. Went to Greece. Yeah, training camp. And he does what really good riders do. He found a way to bring it up a notch, and he brought it up a a big notch. Well, and so that is the um, good segue to my next line of questioning here, which is that after the race, uh, Adrian Vanderpool 
went to cycling, or he went to sports uh, and basically said, oh, if the difference goes up to two minutes, that's not normal. He rides around, but he does not breathe about welfare and air. He called his performance not normal. And, you know, we could take this as the comments of a angry father. Is he saying that, father. that Wout is eating pigeon pie I know, lot? I don't quote, know. Quote, pigeon yeah, pie? We don't know if it's pigeon Ugh. pie. But anyway, you know, we we have to ask ourselves, well, what are the explanations for Wout Van Aert having that type of gap on Matthew Vanderpool. You know, it's not just that Matthew Vanderpool is very strong. It's that he's been dominant all season. He has been embarrassing people, yet on a course like this and in this situation, he didn't. So I think back to the first lap and a half when Van Aert and Vanderpool were going at it and it really was a battle. And you know, Vanderpool seemed to be slipping around and sliding around. He crashed. We saw him crash into that fence. And for me, from my perspective, it seemed like he was, you know, he's frowning. He had bad body language. He was fiddling around with his skin suit. And just the level of confidence that a dominant racer like him needs in order to win, it just didn't, it really didn't seem like that confidence was there on, on that course. Yeah, I think uh, not only did Wout have an exceptional day, I think Matthew was on a particularly bad day. He had a, a terrible day. He had a, a bad day. course for him, I and feel a bad, like. I don't even think it's, I think he could have had a good day on this course and could have won on this course. I really do. I think he just had a really bad day. If Matthew Vanderpool is battling with Michael Van Thornhout and Toon Ertz for a medal at Worlds, you know something is wrong. No disrespect to Van Thornhout and Toon Ertz, but come on. Those guys yeah. aren't even in the same zip code as Matthew Vanderpool when it comes to raw talent. It just was not his day. He I, was yeah, just not I, on it. And I think that if any day or any course is going to expose you when you're on a bad day, it's a course like that. That's fair. Every, you know, if there are 15 corners and you're going two seconds faster in every corner, that's 30 seconds a lap over the course of seven laps. I mean, it just, you just, it adds up. And he was totally exposed out there because he was just not on form. So, you know, 2017, 2018 will be remembered for the year of Matthew Vanderpool dominating the World Cup, only losing two rounds and winning in impressive fashion. But my question for you is, is this still the year of Wout van Aert? Is, you know, if we were to give an MVP award to the 2017-2018 season, are we giving it to Matthew Vanderpool or Wout van Aert? I'm giving it to Vanderpool still. I agree. You got to look at the body of work. And, and for that matter, it, it appears that Vanderpool is on, on track to win both the DVV Trophy Series and the Super Prestige Trophy Series. There's the two, you know, two other biggest cyclocross series in Europe. He just had one bad day. There's no way you can say that he wasn't the best this season simply because Van Aert you know, got up for the for the right day and, and was able to put it together in, in the in the Netherlands. It makes me think of Sven Ness yeah. uh, a little bit. I yeah. mean, that guy has how many wins compared to the rest of the world? Right. He only won, quote, only won two world championships. He just was a body of work type of rider and didn't always show up on worlds. And that is maybe a little chink in the armor, but it's still Sven Ness. I mean, he's... I'm with you. I say that Vanderpool still gets the award, but I do feel like this race really does call into question just how dominant a season he had. I mean, this to me is like the sixteen, the fifteen and one Patriots, or the sixteen and one Patriots. Um, you know, like you win all of the regular season races and the and the playoffs, but in the race when they're supposed to have the most pressure on you, 
Um, you have a bad day. But you know what it does do? It, it lends credence to the beautiful duel. Chris's, Chris Case's story for <laughs> this go. year. Go read the beautiful duel Ex- on except, except they weren't in, in the same zip code on any of these That's occasions. Ugly. Actually, an ugly duel. An ugly, ugly duel. duel. Yeah, you know, the mediocre-looking duel. Yeah. It was a duel. It was an enjoyable cyclocross season, and it ended with a muddy bang. Hey, so, just think about it. They're both only 23 still. If they stick around in cyclocross, there could be a few more occasions for the beautiful duel to reignite. I want to see the beautiful duel on the Perry Roubaix cobblestones. Ooh. Those two. I want to see That's it. What I'm talking Maybe about. cycling could create a new three-way championship for them, where it's the beautiful duel at Valkenburg on the Perry Roubaix cobblestones, and then at like the Red Bull o- Rampage, Offenburg <laughs> Mountain Bike World Cup, or something oh, sure. like that. Okay, oh, we can yeah. keep it. Yeah, yeah let's do it. Omnium. Let's do Omnium. Okay. Before we get to our second segment of the podcast, we need to talk again about Health IQ. Health IQ, as we mentioned at the top of the show, innovative life insurance company offering life insurance people. It's something that uh, you should think about having, especially if you're a healthy, fit individual like all three of us sitting at this table. You know, if you're a runner, if you're a cyclist, uh, go check it out. And they have a URL for us. Spencer, that URL? That's right. It's healthiq.com slash velonews. You get a free quote right there. All right, let's get back to the show. Okay, welcome back to the podcast. Fred Dreyer here. Guys, we need to talk about European road racing because it is February. We're getting into the meat of the early season. We have some of these great early season stage races going on in Dubai, Oman, uh, parts of Spain. But before we get to those, we need to talk about the newest news development that just happened actually a few hours ago, uh, which is that Team Sky released the news that Chris Froome does plan to race this February. He's going to line up at the Ruta del Sol race in southern Spain. That runs February 14th to 18th, and he's going to kick off his season there. It's, It's a little earlier than he tends to kick it off, but of course... This news comes amid the controversy around the adverse analytical, and the whole sport has been trying to determine, ask itself, what is the best way forward here? Um, I be- there was the- Jeremy Whittle wrote a column in Cycling News just yesterday, that would be Sunday, saying that Chris Froome should and Sky should uh, suspend him for the good of the sport. And the next day, the news is uh, kind of a big F you to Jeremy Whittle's take. <laughs> and... Uh, Froome's going to race. So on the line, we have Andrew Hood from Spain. Andy, your ski vacation was unfortunately ruined by high winds this past weekend, so you could just sit and sink your teeth into this Froome news. So what what do we make of this? What do we make of Chris Froome saying that he's going to race Ruta del Sol, not not sit out, not do what Jeremy Whittle wants him to do? Yeah, there, there are so many layers to this story. You know, optically, in terms of optics of what the sport looks like, it can be viewed as a PR disaster. Everyone wants to avoid that whole scenario of Froome racing, and then two or four or six months down the road, it'll go to Koss, and then Koss will take another few months, and then it, he'll get a ban, perhaps, and all, everything that's happened over the past six months of racing will be erased, the will be erased, and it'll be a big disaster. But when you peel back the layers, you know, you have to look at it for what it is. And Froome has tested positive for high levels of an allowed substance. It's not that he was popped for a banned substance. So all these rules were written in a way that everything Froome is doing is following the rules right now. I know it's a big uh, blow up among all the uh, holier than thou rollers, but 
Froome has every right, according to the rules, to race. And he's saying that he did not do anything wrong, that he did not break any rules, and he's working with this legal team to demonstrate this. He's, he has every right to race. You, know, you could argue that he might be wiser to step aside, or you know, he could argue that the best thing for him to do is, is to pursue his right to race, and that's what they've chosen to do. From a... Like, let's, let's hypothesize in the motivations of the man. You are right. He is well within his right to race. There has been significant pushback within the sport, though. Do we see this as Chris Froome sort of giving an F you to um, the people around the sport calling for him to leave? Is this, is this him saying, no, man, you know what? I'm bold. I'm brash. I'm going to do it. Or do we see this as a major sign of confidence that he really does think he can beat this charge? I think it's a sign of that confidence and also a sign of him just thinking that it's not as significant of an issue as it maybe truly is. It sounded that way throughout the entire duration of this case where he has just he keeps on saying he hasn't done anything wrong. He keeps on saying that this will get resolved. And I am not so sure he's as clued into just the, the impact this has. And also, let's face it, it's going to be real awkward to ride next to him in the Peloton if he shows up at Ruta del Sol. Is anyone going to want to talk to him? I don't know. I don't know if I'd want to talk to him and be like, hey, how's the kids? Um. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that brings us to a good point, which was that, Hoodie, you, when you were at the Tour Down Under, spoke with numerous sources about the current state of the Froome affair, basically to get people's takes on whether they think he should race or not. What did people have to say? Yeah, I'd say the general feeling was for the good of the sport, it would be better that he's not going to race just to avoid all these negative headlines. I mean, that's what everyone wants to avoid in terms of how this narrative is going to come out. Already see all the headlines today. Froome is going to race despite threat of ban. So there was a lot of sense of frustration, both in terms of the scenario, the, the situation the sport has found itself in with this case with Froome, and plus the fact that it's going to be more bad publicity for everyone because everyone get, everyone gets painted in the same brush. Um, it's also wor- worth pointing out that this should be, according to the rules, completely in private. The rules allow this to be completely uh, solved behind closed doors, so to speak, and it only comes out uh, really until there is perhaps a ban in the case like this. Whereas uh, you know it's that leak that happened in Feb in, in December. It kind of blew this whole thing open. Otherwise, it would have remained privately. And it was there was an interesting article uh, that Peter Cousins wrote that he cited some stats based on uh, cases that had come through uh, with WADA. There's been about 300 cases since this type of situation has been part of the rewritten of the rules in 2015 when they t- made Sabudamal, took away the TUE, and impose this uh, these these limits. And since then, there's been about 300 cases, not just involving butamol, but other substances as well, where you can use them for uh, TUEs and allowed situations. And there's roughly been, according to the stats, about 100 cases where there have been these so-called adverse analyticals, but there hasn't been a ban. So in one out of three cases, uh, or almost half, there's been cases where this has happened, it's all gone behind closed doors, we never heard about who it was or what the band might have been or even the substance or the team. So the fact we are here right now, you know, obviously you can't go back. The leak blew it open. But it's a situation that everyone just finds himself in a quandary. It's between a rock and a hard place. Still, though, I wonder if, you know, if you have a one in three chance 
to beat one of these cases where it's not a matter of whether you took a banned substance, but it's whether you took too much of a legal substance. Let's say you have a 33% chance of beating it. That means you still have a 66% chance of losing. Like the deck is still stacked against you. And you would, ha- I just have to wonder that if Froome was, was looking at those stats, you know, he might say to himself, you know, I have a puncher's chance at winning, but I also might lose. So, maybe to avoid a situation in which results are going to have to be erased, um, I'm going to yank myself from this. Because I think another interesting wrinkle here is that this race is going to come after Froome has done like 5,000 kilometers of training around South Africa. And, um, you know, we noted that on a past episode that he's been just logging these huge days of training in South Africa. And I do wonder if the athlete's mentality plays into it of like, I've been doing so much hard work and I've been doing so much training and why not use that early? Why let that go to waste? You know, I wonder if that is factoring into his decision. Here's another thought. If Froome decides he won't race, if he sits out Fruta del Sol, if he sits out everything else, is he implicitly admitting that he's done something wrong? Is that is that going to going to cast a negative uh, shadow on him and Team Sky? Where where if he continued racing, it would kind of continue with this facade of of saying, "Oh, nothing's wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. It'll get resolved." Yeah, I mean that is true. This is a sign of confidence, as we mentioned before, and especially it's coming on the heels of you know we've gotten no definitive news out of Sky or Froome up to this point, but there have been these rumors that have been floated and you know one of them was that he was going to go with the kidney problem defense which um you know sky has not gone with that another rumor that was floated was that Froome was going to pull himself out of racing sort of as this gentlemanly or to try and strike a gentlemanly agreement with the authorities to have a reduced ban hoodie i'm sure you saw that news go around i believe it was in a spanish newspaper how much weight do you give to these um, little leaks and these little micro leaks that have come out around the Froome case? I would give them a lot of uh, uh, credence, I think, because simply if you're a lawyer, you're going to be looking at every scenario. If you're, a, if you're a good defense lawyer and the team that Froome has hired is considered the best within the, the sports legal uh, arena. So they'll be, they'll be going from all options, from the nuclear option to just, OK, we did this, we did that. What they want to do, of course, is have a process that works best for them. So they've obviously decided for their own legal arguments that it's best for Chris to keep racing. That, that decision is going to come down from a heavy legal argument. It's not going to be that Chris is, has something to prove to his fans or he wants to show anything. His lawyer is telling him the best thing for you to do is to race. It's a, it's a curious little uh, twist in the story because according to the rules now that the framework is that if Froome is banned, he will be banned from the date of the ban issue. So, for example, if this case drags on for a year, his ban will start when that decision is handed down. It's oh, not going to be backdated. Really? So there's, there's, so there's, for this kind of case, so it won't be backdated at all unless he admits negligence, which I, kind of the list he did. So, but if he fights this to the, to the end and says, I'm innocent and he loses the cast and whatever, how far it goes, his ban will start then. So you could also make the argument that it's in his benefit to keep racing this whole time, collect his paycheck, as well as, you know, maybe even if he wins, he won't lose anything. Wait, wait, wait. So explain this to me, Hoodie. I, I kind of didn't realize that this was not going to be a backdated ban if something were to happen. So you're saying that, okay, so hypothetically, Chris Froome 
doesn't win this case, gets banned. The ban begins after the case ends when they issue that ban. But does he also get that Welta result disqualified then? Potentially both. The way uh. I understand it is, the way I understand it is, if he doesn't so-called cut a deal and, and admit to kind of like almost like the Ulysses scenario and said, okay, well, maybe I did take too much. It was uh, unintended. It wasn't meant to be a performance enhancing. I was treating my illness and maybe I just went over the limit, accidentally admitted to some negligence. Then you can roll it back. But if he kind of fights and he loses that battle, my understanding is the ban starts at the, at the date of the uh, final uh, ruling. And then, of course, if he loses uh, the Welta, that's taken away, plus probably everything that he raced in the meantime. Well, that throws another wrinkle into it. And I guess that definitely is what per, has persuaded uh, Mauro Vengi of RCS, the Giro d'Italia, who asked the UCI last week if they could, if Froome is able to race the Giro, if the UCI could guarantee the result before the race started to basically tell race management, we can guarantee <laughs> that no matter where Chris Froome finishes, uh, no matter what happens in his case, that finish will stand. Uh, how much <laughs> How much weight do you give in that request? That's ridiculous. Hoodie. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know where, I don't know what uh, the venue been hitting the Chianti that day when that <laughs> day, uh, just legally speaking that, you know, there's no way that the UCI can guarantee that result just based on the context of this larger case that he's facing. Yeah, that was a weird one. I still, though, I appreciate the gall. I appreciate the gotta uh, ask. You gotta chutzpah ask. of being like, hey, guys, uh, you know, we're about to wade into um, some dangerous territory here. So could I get a little little backup on yeah, this you, one? You, you will never you'll never know if you don't ask. Yeah. And uh, for true. that well, matter, for that matter, the Giro has been burned so hard on this matter before with Alberto Contador racing and then getting his win disqualified thereafter, even though he handily won that Giro following his Clembuterol. Well, the, uh, that's obviously, I think, the Giro trying to put pressure on the UCI because according to the rules, UCI still has the ability to suspend. Mm. For, they, could have, they could have suspended him after between the A and the B test, and the rule says that any time during the disciplinary process. So the UCI could come down still maybe before the Giro if there's enough, enough pressure on the UCI if the case is dragging on, if if the powers that be that sense there's too much kind of bad news surrounding the case in terms of the image issue and problems, the UCI could suspend, provisionally suspend is the word, uh, Froome, but the UCI has never done that in a case like this. So it'd be a precedent-setting scenario, and plus, so far down the road, it'd be hard for them to imagine them doing that. Well, we can understand why riders and team directors and everyone in the sport is so upset about it. Before we move on from this topic, Hoodie, what was the spiciest take you came across from Tour Down Under when you were speaking to people about their, uh, their perspective on Froome? You don't have to name names or anything like that, but what was sort of the, the harshest line of thinking about the Froome case right now? Uh, there was a lot of uh, the skies falling kind of Ooh. sense that, you know, that... Uh, and no pun intended there. No, I like the pun. Let's, let's roll with <laughs> it. Pun, let's roll with pun it. Pun definitely intended. Yes. You know, everyone said, you know, this is the worst case scenario for the sport. It's, you know, you get Chris Froome or Peter Sagan, the two biggest names in the sport. Those are the last two guys that you want to see involved in sort of any sort of scandal or a stink up because, you know, you get 12 guys at the Welta Costa Rica. You know, it's a, it's a headline for the day, but 
no one's really maybe too surprised about that news or pays too much attention to it for right or for wrong. But the fact that Froome's involved, everyone says that just really cranks up the uh, kind of everything, the volume and the temperature and this whole thing. That's why everyone's really just saying, you know, Froome, the best thing you could do is just sit this out, do the right thing for the sport. But, of course, they obviously have their own interests. Yeah, and he's not going to do that. So we are going to be keeping an eye on Ruta del Sol. In fact, Hoodie, I believe we are going to send you down there to go hang out with Chris Froome and ask him fun questions through that entire race. My guess is the organizers of the Ruta del Sol have to secretly be oh, yeah. pretty psyched about this one. Big headline grab. Oh, yeah, big headline grab. And for spectators, it might be, hey, this, is the, uh, this could be the only opportunity in 2018 <laughs> you get to see Chris Froome race. Maybe. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure the uh, the credential application process just went through the roof today. Every every English journalist is probably booking flights down to southern Spain. Good excuse to get down there. Well, I believe it's a good time, good time of year. Hotels are cheap, and you know the paella is always hot. Moving on, hoodie. We have to talk about Spanish racing because we had the Volta Valenciana wrap up this week in Spain. An ageless wonder, Alejandro Valverde came back from his terrible knee injury last year at the Tour de France, and he just won. I mean, he won two stages in the overall. What, what do we make about Valverde coming back? <laughs> well, what, what can we say about Valverde? The eternal Valverde. I mean, he's, uh, he's the ageless man. He comes back from uh, this, this, uh, this, this knee injury that could have ended his career, comes back stronger than ever, you know, what do you make of it? I and mean, what can you say? I mean, all you can say is that uh, the guy's a, a complete freak of, uh, of nature, I guess. You could say he's one of these guys that have been winning since they were, uh, you know, since he was the Bala Verde, the little embatido from the uh, old days. He never lost a race since he was a junior. I mean, he's a freak of nature. You know, what can you say? Huh, interesting. Yeah, it's really <laughs> impressive how he can just keep on Coming back like that? Out, wow. Outsprinting yeah. Louis, wow. Louis Leon Sanchez, nonetheless, too. I will say that, for my money, you look at that finish, you got two Astana guys up against Valverde. Luis Leon Sanchez, Spanish, probably pretty close with Valverde. They're both old-timers. I mean, come on. Maybe Sanchez kind of let him have it, right? This is just a kind of lower-tier, early-season stage race, home crowds. Ah, you know, give Valverde a little bit of, you know, throw him a bone, maybe. No way, man. I think Valverde is back. This is exactly the Valverde we saw a year ago at this time in the spring when he went on that huge blitz and basically won every stage race he did. And so what if his leg almost fell off when he <laughs> uh, ran into a, uh, into a bear in the Tour de France? He's Alejandro Valverde. He, you know, he'll grow a new leg. He'll find another way to win. Can we actually trust the, these performances from Valverde, though? I mean, come on. He, you know, he was part of Operation Puerto. He, he did a ban for, for doping back in the day, like... Man, you, everyone's suspicious whenever Valverde comes out swinging like this. Ah, that's the sport, my friend. That's ah. the leap of faith we have to take. What's the room temperature take on Valverde in Spain among Spanish cycling fans? Hoodie, when Spanish guy X at the bar finds out that you write about cycling, what do they ask you about Valverde? I think in Spain, there's kind of a blind spot when it comes to some of these, uh, you know, these dirty old stories that might be around. I mean, people loved Contador in Spain after his ban for Clem Buterol came back and he was bigger than ever. And I think there's a higher degree of perhaps forgiveness in the uh, European culture for these kinds of things. Everyone's like, well, 
the sport so hard, of course they have to take something. You know, <laughs> so the, the attitude is a little bit more permissive. It, to them, it's not a surprise that if anyone, we're not saying just Valverde, but if anyone in the, in, in the sport might be taking some extra, extra painkillers at the end of the stage, it's not a surprise to them. But with Valverde, he is one of these old guys that, you know, he's been around making headlines for a long time. The Spanish media is trying to sell Landa as kind of the next breakout star. But it's Valverde who keeps winning. It was a, his 111th victory of his career, which is pretty good for a guy who, you know, he's not a pure sprinter. He's a guy who can uh, win in all types of, of terrain. Yeah. So, so how bummed does Mikel Landa have to be to see Valverde just flying into the season like this and like, oh, I, I thought I was going to be the leader on this team. And obviously Quintana is still a leader too. So now we're back in a scenario where Mikel Landa's on, on a super team and thinking he should be a leader, but probably will only get a few handfuls of true opportunities to be the, the guy to lead this Movistar team, right? That's probably right. It's a very good read of the situation because Valverde is coming in hot. His early season focuses, I mean, the spring classics again with the Ardennes. And then, uh, you know, Movistar, they're bringing all three of these guys to the Tour and the Vuelta. No one's going to the Giro between Landa, Quintana, or Valverde. So it's going to be very interesting to see how it shakes out. In fact, today, speaking in Colombia, Zue reconfirmed that Quintana is the team leader just based on his uh, legacy of the Tour so that he has the chance to really be, at least going into the tour this year, based, you know, if everyone stays healthy, he'll still kind of be the, the, the quasi-team leader. But then Landa, you know, who knows what he's going to do. Wait, so who are they sending to the Giro then? Are they just going to just pull off the development team or something? and just, Like some random guys that we've never heard of? Day or Quintana? That, yeah, is the brother, yeah. uh, younger Quintana brother? Uh, or is he I think they're sending uh, Amador, who's been in the top five before. They're sending uh, Mark Soler. Some of these younger developing riders. But yeah, they're bringing in all their big guns to uh, to the tour. I think it's great. Well, half of them are going to crash out on the cobble stage. So, you know, you play the odds and one way or the other, you end up with a guy who can lead. I just wonder what kind of munch, monkey wrench gets thrown into the pub, public relations around who's the leadership when uh, Valverde goes on another spring terror and wins all of these one-week stage races, wins the Ardennes, and just comes in flying. I mean, last year... In March, we were already having the conversation of could you know could Valverde win the tour? I mean, he's so smart, he's so strong, he's so cagey, and I have no doubt that we're going to find ourselves in a similar position to that uh, a couple months from now, wondering if they should actually be putting all of the eggs in the Valverde basket. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, I think even Valverde admits he's not going to win the tour, even though I thought last year. Last year's tour was almost really perfect for Valverde, yeah. at least to get to get on the podium, because it was one of those tours where you just follow the wheel, follow the wheel, short time trial. You know, you get the time bonuses into the stage finish, and that's how basically Uran got second place in the tour last year. But I think this year's tour is a little bit, little bit harder in the mountains, deeper in the climbs, and I think Quintana, if he's good, should be able to uh, you know be ahead of Valverde in those situations. Well. We got Froome, we got Quintana, Valverde, Landa. We have so many great storylines to take us through the spring. Um, Hoodie, before we get out of here, we need to do a little off the front, off the back to talk about what's hot and what is not in the world of cycling. We had so much go on this past week with the Cyclocross World Championships, with the Volta Valenciana preparing for the desert races, um, and then your own 
experience trying to go skiing and get blown out by winds that's not that's not hot i'd say trying yeah, that's to go skiing yeah that's not a, that's well trying to go skiing and, and not doing it that's that's the bad part because normally you know the old hoodie would just bash through the snow and and ski but it was the in-laws man they were making me nervous and <laughs> it was it was easier just to pull the schleck shoot and just go home rather than to listen to my mother-in-law complain for the next 72 hours um, okay, Spencer, do you want to lead us off? Jeez, I'm always leading it off. Off the front? You want me off again? All right, okay. Off the front, for me, by a long shot, is the U.S. elite women's cyclocross team that was in Valkenburg, Netherlands, racing on Saturday. They put uh, Katie Compton on the podium, second, and Caitlin Keogh, sixth, L. Anderson, eighth. That was enough for them to win the nation's prize, which is kind of not very well publicized, but uh, they do this for the elite women's race and the elite men's race as well. And it's the most consistent, strongest country. So they had three riders in the top 10. No other country did that. This is the first time since 2002 that the U.S. team pulled this off in the women's race. And Jeff Proctor, my hat to, I tip my hat to him for pretty much predicting this. I, mm. I had reached out to him prior to the race and he said, this reminds me of that 2002 team when they won the nation's prize. Sure enough, they did it. And um, congratulations to all them. Really strong race in just a brutal, brutal conditions. All right, what's off the back? Mm, off the back for me, I, I'm going to stick with cyclocross because I think you, Hoodie's probably going to do the road thing. I'm going to say off the back for me is the home team. And that is the Dutch cyclocross team for uh, world championships. Uh, Vanderpool, nowhere to be seen in the men's race. In the women's race, uh, Sana Kant repeated as well, another Belgian. So Netherlands went home empty-handed in those elite races. And, you know, for that matter, I'm not sure if they actually won any other worlds for that matter. They didn't win the under-23. And then I think that Eli, Eli Isabet won the Belgian with the Belgian Eli Ezerbet won the under twenty three men's race. A tough go for the for the Dutch team, I'd say. Bummer for the Dutch. Womp womp womp. I'm gonna have a very cyclocrossy off the front, off the back, as well. So for off the front, I have crashing and still winning because you know we talked about this earlier in the show. I just love it when a champion can be a flawed champion and still find a way to win. So Walt Van Aert. You know, midway through the men's championship, he has this huge gap. He's riding so great on this slip, slippery slick, mud-strewn course, and he just loses it, crashes in the fence, and, like, falls over. And usually in cyclocross races, especially, you know, hotly contested races like world championships, that's kind of the end for a guy. And he was just like, nah, whatever. Like, yeah, whatever. I have, I have a one-kilometer lead right now on uh, Matthew Vanderpool. There's like a mountain bike race. Yeah. So far off the front. So to be able to crash and get muddy and look gross and still win, I think that that's off the front. Off the back, dad takes. Oh. Yeah. Dad takes. What is that? Well, Matthew Vanderpool's dad's takes. Oh, yeah. To be exact. <laughs> uh, we talked about this too. Uh, Adrian Vanderpool going to Sportsa and basically saying that Wout Van Aert's performance was pas normal. He says, if the difference goes up to two minutes, that is not normal. It didn't Matthew Vanderpool win some races by like a couple minutes. He rides around, but he does not breathe. You know, look, all of our dads love us. You know, they love us. They want to cheer for us. They want to see us win. But, you know, I, I got to say, if your kid is not winning, I just don't know if you need to go uh, accuse the guy who was winning a doping. But, hey, I don't know. I mean, Adrian Vanderpool also ate um, doped 
um, pigeon back in the pigeon day. Pie, yes. Pigeon we pie, yeah. We talked about that last uh, episode. So, you know. Delicious. Maybe, maybe he knows how to spot that type of performance. Yeah, smart, right, smart guy. All right, Hoodie, what's off the front? What's off the back? I'm going to go off the front with a sky rider who's not Chris Froome, but uh, <laughs> Egon Bornal, this new uh, Colombian kid who won the Tour of the Avenir last year, signed after two years racing with Johnny Savio, is now the, the big new signing for Team Sky, 21 years old. He's racing the Colombian Oro y Paz race this week. He'll be back in Europe over later this spring, probably Paris and Catalonia. I mean, this kid has got star potential written all over him. He, uh, we, I talked to him a little bit down at the two run under. Real smart kid. He's got a head in a good spot. Just great pedaling style. Has this reported uh, VO2 max just off the charts. High 80s, low 90s. And this kid, I think, is going to be really uh, something special. We'll see if, you know, on the Team Sky structure, if he ever has a chance to race. The team's telling me they'll probably send him to the Welter this year. It all really depends on what happens with Chris Froome what his schedule is going to be like. But keep your eye on that kid off the front. He'll be making an impression this year. And off the back, you just got to say, I mean, the whole Chris Froome thing, you know. I mean, it's just the last thing the sport needs. There's no easy way out of this situation for anybody. It's just going to be this kind of bad talking point for really for, I think, this whole season. So we're going to start with the worst, and it's just going to keep going down this road until – it's resolved, and then no one's going to be happy no matter what happens with this scenario. That sounds like the take of a guy who really wanted to go skiing and didn't get to do it. Mm. <laughs> grumpy. Grumpy hoodie. Grumpy non-skiing grumpy. takes. Do you have any other winter um, trips planned? Any winter adventures into the mountains planned, Hoodie, to get your takes back on the positive side of things? Yeah, we'll, we'll try to get up back up to the mountains. The thing is, when, it, when these storms hit in northern Europe, it, they just hang around for weeks. I mean, it's, uh, it's going to be closed down the thrall next weekend. And it's just so, so much snow, so much wind, so much fog that you can't even see if you go skiing anyway. <laughs> so you just got to wait till the stuff blows out. So it might take a couple more weeks. Oh, man. Then you can go crush that pow. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VelNews.com. Subscribe to the VelNews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of VelNews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine. And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash VelNews. The VelNews podcast is produced by VelNews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the VelNews podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy Classic Soul Drums. Oh,